chapter. The word of the Lord. What then shall we say to all this? If God is for us, who is against us? God, after all, did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How then will he not with him freely give us all things? And who will bring a charge against God's chosen one? It is God who declared them in the right. Who is going to condemn? It is the Messiah, Jesus, who died, or rather has been raised, who is at God's right hand and also prays on our behalf. Who will separate us from the Messiah's love? Suffering or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As the Bible says, because of you, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep destined for slaughter. No, in all these things, we are completely victorious through the one who loved us. I am persuaded, you see, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature will be able to separate us from the love of God in King Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful and wonderful truth. That you, God, who as the Apostle John told us is love. That you, who are love, showed us, demonstrated your love for us in sending Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. That while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And that you have given us the Spirit, the Lord, who speaks to us and reminds us of the words that Christ has done and empowers us to do the things that he has called us to do. The Spirit who testifies these things to our spirit as he lives within us, all those who have called on your name. And so, Father, we call on the name of Jesus. We ask now that he would... Speak to us and through us by the Holy Spirit as we dig deeper into the word. We pray for our time at the table coming that we would realize how important it is that we break bread and, and, and share a cup this morning, recognizing that we are your body and that you gave the body of your son and that his blood was spilt on our behalf. That is what brought us life. That is the victory we have in his name and that he is the resurrected, glorified Lord, the King of Kings. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our brother and friend. Oh, Father, lead us, direct us, love us, and bind us together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Who would consider themselves a music lover? Like, you go out of your way to listen to music. You don't, you don't just, like, turn on the radio when you're driving, but you sit down and you go, I'm going to listen to this music. Anyone? Anyone? Awesome. Great. I love music. And if you follow me on social media, you'll, you'll see that I have a, a varied variety of, of different artists and genres I, I like to listen to. And I think that it's, um, it's kind of important to keep current on music. Uh, even though I'm, I'm doing a horrible job. When I turned 40, you know, I started looking backwards rather than looking presently. Uh, because in some ways, musicians are kind of like the philosophers of our time. They, they have their, their finger on, the, uh, on the, the heartbeat of culture, asking, uh, you know, the important questions, the big questions. What are people, what are on people's minds? 
And in and, and many ways, uh, the big question seems to be about one of love, right? Ever heard a love song? Right? They ask the big questions. What is love? Oh, that's a big question, right? Have you heard that song? That's probably stuck in your head. You're welcome. Can you feel the love tonight? Can you? Can you, Marie? Right? Right? Can you feel the love tonight? I, I was thinking of that from the Lion King. Aaron was, was holding his little guy above his, his and I just wanted to go, and that's probably not how it is, but that was going through my head. What? What's love got to do with it? Right? I'm, I'm seeing a, pers a per like kind of per a procession here. What is love? Can you feel the love tonight? What's love got to do with it? And then the most important one, who let the dogs out? Right? Isn't that marriage? Right? What is love? Can you feel the love tonight? Oh, what's love got to do with it? Did you let the dogs out? Right? This morning, when I was thinking about this message, um, I, had a, I had a song in my head, and it is also one of those songs that asks a question about love. It's a popular little ditty by a band in the 70s called the Bee Gees. And it was, does anybody know? Anybody can think what the song is? Oh, it's on there. How deep is your love? It's a good question. How deep is your love? Anyway, I'm sure none of the kids in the front row have actually heard that song. Or maybe you have. You haven't? Wasn't it on SpongeBob or something like that? I'm not sure. Anyway, how deep is your love? And the reason I was humming that is that as I read over the scriptures again that we're, we're looking at this morning, that's kind of the question I think that Paul is, is kind of answering for his readers. And they're not asking Paul how deep his love is, but in other words, they're asking God how deep is his love for us? And, and he answers that question, as a good teacher was, by asking other question, question after question, which is supposed to prompt us to think and, and to reminisce and to consider what we've just read and the love of God that has been shown through the words in which we've been looking at and studying. Because Paul is, is simply or seemingly to answer the question of, what can separate us from the love of God? What can separate us from the love of God? How deep is God's love? I, I think I shared with you the story before that when Tina and I and family were in Dauphin and we were ministering there, um, I had the opportunity every Wednesday to go into Barker School, named for Colonel Barker, a Canadian uh, veteran, and uh, teach a Bible class. And, and we're talking about God and the Father and how he loves us and, and one little girl. Do you remember her name, that little girl? Billy Kay, that was her name, right? And uh, she had asked me the question, I'm sure I've shared this before, that how can, how can God be my daddy when I already have a daddy? Right? Knowing that Billy Kay didn't have a daddy at home. And he had left her and her mom a long time. And I just kind of fell in my spirit. She was just asking, well, if, if God is my daddy, is he going to love me like my earthly daddy did? And to be able just to speak truth into her, 
and say no. God, as a daddy, has love beyond any measure. It's the love that is supposed to move every daddy. And that love that even fills us in the absence of one. Those aren't the words I used, but that was the truth I was trying to get. And do you remember what, what happened next? I asked her, do you have anything else to say, honey? And she said, yes, you have a big nose. <laughs> See, treasure's in heaven. Right? What can separate us from the love of God? And so Paul um, wants us to, to think about the love of God in light of everything that we've read thus far. That's why he begins in 31 saying, what then shall we say in response to these things? Which things? Well, some people think that Paul's going as far back as chapter 5 up into the present to chapter 8. Others believe that he's focusing more on verses within the chapter, particularly those of verse 17 and 18, which deal with suffering. That why do we suffer? Right? Because Paul speaks about suffering in the name of Christ, or suffering for Christ, as Christ suffered. And perhaps for me, that's the best explanation, considering that in verse 36, he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm uh, 44, verse 22. For the sake, for your sake, we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, which is really interesting because Romans 8, as I shared, is one of my favorite passages. And then it, 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 it tells this incredible um, a narrative, this, this journey about our security and our affirmation and the love that we have in God, secured in Christ Jesus, made present and known to us through the Holy Spirit. And then you get to this passage, and to me it just seems out of place. Because he's, he's talking about uh, the assurance we have, the confidence we have. And then he adds, for your sake we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And it's interesting because when you go to that, that psalm and, and, and you read it, Psalm 44, you realize that it's actually a complaint to God. It's a complaint because Israel is suffering. They're experiencing the suffering, the persecution of the nations around them. And it's revealed in the psalm that they're not suffering because they've been unfaithful to God. But rather, that's why the complaint is coming from the psalmist, because we have been faithful to you. We have been faithful to your covenant, and yet here we are suffering. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how people, that's how the nations around us see. And it it's, could be that, that Paul's encountering the thoughts of his readers, knowing that as we began looking at Romans and we looked at the cultural situation and the political situation around Romans, because it takes place within Rome, you know, by the Roman Empire, that they're they are experiencing suffering, and suffering in, in terms of being... Um, um, isolated or maligned, um, suffering in, in terms of, uh, of their, um, their place within a community or the benefits they would, they would have in a community being denied to them. And as we know in church history, it's only going to get worse. And so just like, God, if, if, if you're for us, 
And why, why are we experiencing this suffering? Because they're not just asking as individuals, they're talking about the people of God. If we are your people, why do we experience these things? It's a good question. Suffering can cause us to question, uh, even the greatest. We shared many times looking at John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who um, prophesied about the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ, one that he would not even be worthy, right, to, uh, to touch the straps of his sandals. And then, and then when he sees, he sees Jesus, he looks to his disciples, to the crowds, behold, looking at Jesus, the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he, it says in John 1. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remained on him. And then, and then the Gospel of John makes known that these were signs that John had been revealed from God to look for. And there'll be one in which the Spirit descends like a dove and remain on him. And then what? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is sent into the wilderness, right? John's saying, I know it's him. And yet, we look at Matthew 11, where, where John is now in prison, and he sends his disciples, or some of his disciples, some of his disciples became disciples of Jesus, that's what John wanted, but some of his, 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 his group go to Jesus, and John has one question for Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one, or should we be expecting somebody else? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one, the promised one? Which is really weird, because when we compare it to John chapter 1, we should be asking, why is he even doubting this? He knows Jesus is the one. He, he has seen the sign that God gave him that this is my son, the son of God. This is the Messiah. But yet he doubts. And why does he doubt? Because he's suffering. He's in prison. John will die there. I love that the Lord does not scold John. On the contrary, he praises John. It's, it's the greatest prophet that God has ever risen up. But yet he will say, even he, though, um, is not as great as those that are even least in the kingdom of God. But he doesn't scold John. He goes, he has his disciples go back to and report to them what they've witnessed, what they've seen, and what they have heard. This, they saw the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy were cleaned, the deaf heard, and the dead were raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then in, in verse 6 in that chapter in Matthew 11, he says, Blessed, Jesus says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Because the kingdom that Jesus was establishing would be brought through what? Suffering. Jesus didn't bring a sword, 
He endured the cross. Jesus didn't kill his enemies. He died for his enemies. It is what we are told. By his wounds, we are healed. And the same would be true for his followers, that by their suffering, the kingdom of God would be revealed in them. That's why Paul quotes Psalm 44:22 to show them it's always been this way with God's people. It's always been this way that God's people have suffered. As one Bible teacher puts it, he says, here, as in the servant passages in Isaiah, we find a true truth deeply embedded in Judaism and drawn on by several early Christians and arguably by Jesus himself, that God will save his people, not despite their sufferings, but through and even because of them. Somehow, as in Colossians 1.24, the sufferings of God's people are taken up into God's purposes, not in order to add to the unique achievement of the Messiah, but in order to live it out in the world so that his love might extend yet further. Those who believe this can be sure of that. In all these things, we are completely victorious to the one who loved us. That God is working in and through and over our sufferings to bring about good, to bring about the kingdom of God. This is, this is the point. Their suffering was not a sign that they had been some way cast away from God's love. But rather, their suffering was a sign that they were in Christ. And thus, heirs of the promises and the love that God has for us in his only begotten son, that we are secure and loved as God's children, that even in the midst of suffering, we can be confident of this. I, I mentioned earlier, verse 17, this is what it says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. A share in his sufferings as heirs. We're heirs to the promises of God. The previous verses, the ones that we ended with last week, speak why we can be confident. So I'm just going to read them again. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What's interesting about that verse, if you have your Bible, look at it. Verse 30. You can put yourself in the center of that verse. And I, I encourage you to do so. So in the center of that verse, you can actually look back into that verse. You can look along that sentence, down that sentence, and you can see that from where you stand, you stand where you are now because you have been chosen 
and loved by God. That God chose them. God chose you. He chose you. That before the creation of the world, God foreloved and predestined us to be justified. Why? Because he loved them. He loves us. He loves you. He chose you. He chose us. And he has justified us. And if you remember, justification is God declaring you right before him. You are in the right. You are not guilty. Your sins are not held against you. In fact, Jesus held them against himself. And they were punished in the flesh of Jesus. And because of that, we're justified. We're made right. We are part of his covenant community. We are part of the children of God. We are the family of God. We are heirs of God. We are sons of God, which means we have all the rights of a firstborn son. Given to us in what? The rights of God's only begotten son. But that's just where we stand now. We stand justified in that calling, in that love. But we can look down the rest of the verse. We can look future down the sentence to what? Our glorification. Where we are glorified. What does that mean? That's the, that's the end result of our salvation. Salvation, as we've looked before in the Gospels, in the New Testament, is used in three different tenses. It's used in the past tense. You are saved. It's in the present tense. You are being saved. And it's in the future tense. You will be saved or we will be saved. I like to compare it to marriage. I was married. I am married, and barring any unforeseen circumstances, probably on my behalf, I hope to be married in the future. I don't have to hope here. This is secured. Because what is the tense used in this sentence? Glorified. That is the past tense. Which means that which is to come is already secured. It is finished. It is a done deal. Everything has already been paid up. We just await the day, the day that God the Father himself chooses. And may it be today when we hear that trumpet sound and the foot of our king touches this soil once again and transforms the heavens and the earth and that we will stand with him with new bodies redeemed bodies transformed bodies new flesh that's what Paul talked about the redemption of our bodies that bodies that will be in perfect harmony with the work that God has already done in our spirit completely compatible forever that like I know it's like almost lunch anybody got a pain today I'm not talking about who you came with that was a joke anybody got a pain today in their back their hip 
Think about that. That right there is a longing. Yeah, Charmaine just said, scam the whole. Right? I'm sure a lot of you can say the whole thing. But as we talked about last week, may those pains, may that groaning be, may it be put forward. Because it's a longing that has a satisfaction, a completion, an end date, or rather a new date, a new life, a new existence, a new purpose, a new kingdom forever in him. To be at the right place at the right time in the right company. In fact, just to be right. Just to be in the right. Not to get your way, but to be right. No insecurities, no doubts. Just to be at peace and joy. Holy, known, holy love forever. And we have the foretaste of that in the Holy Spirit. And we can be confident. That's our confidence. How? Verse 31. God is for you. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Do we, do we believe God is all-powerful? Do we believe that God can do all things? If you do, then he, that's the one who has secured your justification, your glorification. He is for you. God is not against you. If you've experienced tragedy or heartbreak in this life, that is not a sign that God has removed his life, his love, his security from you. It's a sign, in fact, that you are in Christ. You are in his life. Now, hear me out. I'm not saying that God has purposely brought about this suffering to show you this. I'm saying that we live in a broken world. Read Genesis. If you want to know why can't things be like, first chapter 1, chapter 2, why can't they be like that? Look to chapter 3. If you need a living example, look in the mirror. Because we're broken, and we brought brokenness. But what did God do immediately in our brokenness? He made sacrifice. And to cover our shame, or what we proposed as our shame, and provided for us. And cast us, actually, from the garden so that we would not eat of the, the tree of life and live in that state forever. But rather to look forward to the promise, or rather the curse that he made to the serpent, that one would be born of the woman. And even though the serpent would bruise his heel, the one that would come would crush his head. The Savior, the King, the Christ, the Messiah. I'm saying that we live in a broken world, and we live in a world that, is, that has a spiritual battle going around us at all times. Do we believe that? Do we believe in Ephesians chapter 6, where it says that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the principalities, the powers, those that are actively working against God. And if those powers are actively working against God, how do you think they feel about you who are in God? I talked about song lyrics this morning. Here's, here's one of my favorite song lyrics of all time. But nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. 
And that's exactly what Jesus did. He overcame the powers of sin and flesh and the devil at the cross. They just haven't accepted their defeat yet. That's why I, I like one preacher says that we live in the day just like it was between um, D-Day and V-Day in World War II. When, when you know, D-Day, when essentially the Allies defeated uh, uh, the Nazi regime, and the war was basically over. Um, there were skirmishes here and there and what have you, but it wasn't actually done and finished until when? Victory Day. That's what we live in. We live in the time where the enemy has been defeated. Oh, but there are still skirmishes. But what? The victory is secure. It's secure in Jesus. And we can accept that now. Will God allow suffering into our life? Yes. Do you remember, what was it, last week or the week before, we looked at Paul specifically looking at the, the messenger of Satan that, that, that God allowed near Paul, the thorn in the flesh that he talked about. Remember Jesus talking to Peter that the, the enemy, Satan, is the devil, is asking to sift you. But here's the thing, that if God allows suffering into our life, it is always on purpose and for a purpose. And that is to make us more like Christ. It's like those poor people who found out that they broke a bone and it is set wrong, and then they have to re-break it so that it sets right. Boy, that's a fun trip to the hospital. But isn't that... Isn't that exactly what David called out and say, may these bones that you have crushed rejoice again? And also, and I believe this with my whole heart, that there's things in our life that we may believe are suffering, but are actually blessings. And we just don't know it yet because we don't have the eyes of eternity, but we trust the one who does. And if you need any evidence, well, that's point number two. Verse 32. How can we be secure of this? Write this down. It's important. Jesus. Jesus. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you think that God gave his son? Do you think that Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to earth? Because remember Jesus said that he laid down his life on his own accord. And that he had the power to raise it up again. Jesus chose. God chose to send the son, the son of God. Do you think he came and lived our life and walked our earth and breathed our air and knew our joys and especially our sufferings to die on a cross just so that he would drop us at the end? Do you think that all that purposed before time began, Ephesians, that before the creation of the world, he chose us, he chose you, and do you think he's just going to drop you at the end? 
And I say that he would have to drop you because it had to be his choice. Because no one, nothing, anywhere, ever has the power to remove you from his hand. It would have to be he, Christ himself, that let you go. But as far as I know, he said that's not happening. And why? Verse 33, you're going to like this one. We're connected. We know the right people. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. We know the right people. Who is going to bring a charge against us? God? The one who chose us? Who predestined us? Who has justified us? Through the life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus? Who's going to condemn us? Jesus? The one who right now is at... The right hand of God doing what? Praying for you? Who's going to bring a charge with you, God? No. Who's going to condemn you, Jesus? No. Then who will? No one that matters. Nothing in human experience, neither life or death. In the spiritual realm, neither angels or demons. In time, neither the present nor the future. In anything that opposes God's people, any powers. In space, either height or death. Nothing in all creation. Nothing. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Why? Because God loves us simply because it was his choice to love us. His choice. Not because of anything in us or anything around us that can change. He loves us because he loves us. He justified you because he wanted to. He lives within you through the spirit because it brings him pleasure, even though we grieve him. Because he looks ahead with purpose in that great and glorious day when we will stand with him, like him, it is finished. Author and speaker, Brennan Manning, and I've, I've shared this story before. It's really interesting how he got the name Brennan. If you ever want to read a really good book, it's called The, the Ragamuffin Gospel. He says the gospel's for ragamuffins. Google it. You'll figure out what it is. You might even think, hey, that's me. But anyway, how he got the name Brennan. Because he was given the name Richard. While growing up, uh, Richard, his best friend was a man named Ray. And they did everything together. They bought their first cars together as teenagers. They double dated together. They went to uh, uh, school together and so forth. They even enlisted in the army together. They went through basic training together. They were in the same platoon together. 
And one night while they were sitting in a foxhole, uh, Richard was reminiscing about Brooklyn and all the good times they had and what have you. And uh, him and Ray were laughing back and forth. And all of a sudden, a live grenade came into the foxhole. And Richard saw it. And Ray saw it. And Ray dropped his chocolate bar. He looked at Brennan and he smiled. And then he threw himself on that grenade. And it exploded and killed him instantly. When Richard was to become a priest, he was instructed to take the name of a saint. And so he thought of his friend Ray Brennan. So he took the name Brennan. Brennan Manning. Later years, later years, Brennan went to visit Ray's mother. And as they were sitting there having tea, he had this, this, this moment of doubt and contemplation. And he asked Ray's mother, do you think Ray really loved me? And Mrs. Brennan got out of her chair and she pointed her finger in Brennan's face and said, what more could have he done to show you he loved you? And it was that moment that Brennan Manning had an epiphany. He imagined him standing before the, the cross of Christ and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, pointing at him and saying the same words, what more could have he done to show how much he loves you? And so now the question changes for us. We could ask God, how deep is your love? But now that we look at God in the light of Romans chapter 8 and the life of Jesus, maybe we should start asking ourselves that question. How deep is our love? How deep is your love? The same Brendan Manning said that when, when, when we, we look towards uh, judgment, uh, not the great white throne judgment, not uh, separation of the, the, the sheep and the goats, and, but when we have what's called, a, I think it's called the Bema seat judgment, Burma, Bema Burma, I can't remember, that when we uh, will meet before the Lord Jesus Christ, um, and we will look at our, our, our ministry, we'll look at our life before him, that Brendan Manning says you can sum up that whole conversation like this, uh, that Jesus will ask, or God will ask the question, um, how did you shape your life around the love of my son? Because if this is the God who loves us, if this is the God who have chosen us and justified us and is going to glorify us and is sanctifying us, is this is our God who can be against you? What do we have to fear? The cross is the way of God saying that, that he did everything that he could do for us. Does, does God love us? Yes. Even though we suffer, yes knowing that our suffering is not an end to itself. It's pointing to someone in a time that is greater.